Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. Here in Northern Ireland, programs like Young, young Entrepreneur, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, helping thousands of young people each year gain skills and pursue the goals, their goals as entrepreneurs. This has been the President of the United States of America. May God have mercy on our souls. Stu does America. Load up on the best in conservative merch. Stu does merch.com. Use promo code Stu10 and save 10%. If you're watching on YouTube, like this video right now. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Do all the things. Amy Swearer is going to join us in a little bit to destroy the left's terrible takes on the Louisville and Nashville shootings. A suspect has been arrested in the Pentagon's uh, leak case. I've got the latest uh, for you on that. But we start by doing Elon Musk versus... NPR. You know, we have a very strange relationship with Elon Musk. I think everybody does. It's odd. I mean, we see both sides of the coin just in the last couple of days. I mean, today we're going to be talking about this fight that they're in with NPR. The left is really pissed off about it. The right is really excited about it. The government's coming after Elon Musk and making him out to be this terrible, terrible guy who's squashing free speech, blah, 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 blah. And then yesterday's show was just a massive government gift to Elon Musk. This new batch of e, uh, EPA regulations that are going to force people to buy reg, uh, electric cars. You know, he's the biggest uh, electric car company in the world, and he's going to enjoy the bounty that the government has given him just yesterday. And then today, they're all mad at him. It's really, really, really sad. And I think we all have this sort of relationship with Elon Musk because there's honestly some really good things and some really bad things. One of the things that we've been talking about for a while is Twitter as a site. Would Elon Musk improve it or would he make it worse? Uh, for example, there's some things he's done that really have improved it. We, we talked about this tweet earlier. Nancy Pelosi said the grand jury has acted upon the facts and the law when it comes to Trump's indictment. He said no one is above the law and everyone has the right to a trial to prove innocence. Now, readers added context. They thought people might want to know below it. Ms. Pelosi mistakenly says that Trump can prove his innocence at trial. Law in the U.S. assumes the innocence of a defendant and the prosecution must prove guilt for a conviction. And then a link to Cornell. Uh, Again, like that's the type of thing that would never have happened before Elon Musk took over. On the other hand, I will say as a person who uses uh, Twitter from time to time, I try to get on there and see what people are talking about. It had, I mean, some of the changes have really just made it more difficult to use as a site. I mean, you take a, the, the blue check thing is, is a good example of this. I mean, I don't, no one cares about the status symbol of a blue check. The only thing I like about the old blue check system was like when someone's making a claim, I can actually kind of convince myself uh, that it's that's them. Right. Like it's a it's officially them. Now, you know, anyone can buy a blue check, which I guess is fine if you're if they're I mean, I think it would be some sort of process to say they are who they say they are. But now a lot of these other companies, and this is going to happen more in a couple of weeks, are not paying for the blue check. So we're not going to know whether they're the person they say they are or not, or the organization they say they are or not. I mean, there's been a lot of people who've just been like, you know, screwing around and they put up a picture of the New York Times logo and start tweeting as the New York Times with a similar handle that they've paid for. They've got a blue check. And then you can't tell if it's them or not, or at least it adds layers of checking to your day. And Already, Twitter is not reliable. There's already too much checking you have to do. At least when someone says something dumb on Twitter, you want to know who that dumb person is. And now that's bidding. I will say, like, it's uh, some of these changes are just like, what, what's the point of them? I, you know, I, I under, it, like, should the New York Times pay the $7 or whatever it is? Sure. 
But, like, honestly, it, it's not an improvement to the site in any way. Um, so, I mean, it's been a mixed bag with Elon. Honestly, I thought this site would be a lot better when he took it over because I thought usability would be kind of his main focus. And I don't think that's really been the case so far, frankly. It's not really, it's not great. But stuff like fact-checking Nancy Pelosi, uh, A+. Plus. Uh, just awesome. So it's been a mixed bag. NPR kind of sees it as the negative side, uh, apparently. Uh, they had this slapped on them. And we're going to get into whether this is true or not. NPR, at NPR, has been slapped with the label government-funded media. Now, you think an organization like NPR that is incredibly liberal and you know, has, I think it's 92 to 95% of its people have donated to Democrats. It's really hard to find a story that is ever, uh, you know, even representing fairly the conservative view, let alone endorsing it. It's a very, very, very liberal institution. So you'd think someone who thinks government can solve every problem would be open to the idea that they are a government-funded media source. Why would they think that this indicates anything negative? They say government can solve almost every problem we have. Why not just embrace it? Well, they wrote to Elon Musk and said this. Why the state label? Because of the label, NPR is quitting Twitter across all of our 50-plus accounts. Our executives say that the government-funded media label calls into question our editorial independence and undermines our credibility. You know, shouldn't it? Just a quick uh, point. Uh, some wonder if this will cause a chain reaction among news organizations. What's your reaction? You like that? That's the implicit threat there. Hey, if we do this, maybe some other people will follow us. And then what are you going to do, Elon? Of course, Elon doesn't care. His response was just defend, uh, defund NPR. <laughs> short, short and sweet. Now, NPR quit Twitter after being falsely labeled as a state-affiliated media is which they, what they wrote excuse me, on the site. Uh, they wanted to defend themselves. This is, this is their defense of uh, you know, this sort of ridiculous point here. They're, they're saying, well, uh, we're being falsely labeled as state-affiliated media. I want to walk you through their case here, but can we, can we zoom in on the ad that my producer had there on the, side? <laughs> the screen here? It's uh, from Revolve Clothing. They got free shipping and returns, and it seems to be women's clothing. Now, you might say, well, maybe you know, your producer was just looking for a present for his, uh, his wife, and, and that's what uh, you know, caused this ad to be served to him. Um, however, he was definitely wearing these heels the other day. I mean, he's 100% he was wearing those heels. Somebody's looking for a Bud Light sponsorship. I'll tell you that. Okay, Twitter uh, then revised its label on NPR's account. This is according to NPR. Uh, the account it had government-funded media under it. The news organization says that it is inaccurate and misleading given that NPR is a private nonprofit company with editorial independence. Hmm. It received less than 1% of its $300 million annual budget from the federally funded Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Now, how is it false if you are admitting you received 1% from the government? How exactly is that false? Like if, for example, a story came out, The Blaze gets about 1% of its funding from the KKK. Do you think NPR might notice something like that? Do you think the New York Times might write about it. Do you think they would be opposed to calling us racists if that was going on? I doubt it. It is important to know if the government is funding a news organization, any news organization. Now, look, there's a bit of irony here because Elon Musk has built his electric car and solar empires on government dollars. So I don't even know why he would think it's an insult. I guess it's an insult when you're talking about journalism. I don't know, honestly, but I mean, to be fair here, it is a fair point to, uh, to note 
that a lot of government money, I mean, uh, you know, $7,500 in tax rebates went to at least a large batch at the beginning of, of, of Tesla buyers. We were paying people to buy Teslas there uh, for a little bit. So I don't know if this is an incredible point. For, I mean, Elon Musk isn't exactly anti-government by any means. Again, he's a moderate. People get so, so into him, act like he's this huge conservative. He's not. I mean, look at his global warming stances. He's nowhere near a conservative on these issues. Um, now, of course, NPR was on the bandwagon. Now, PBS has also stepped up. They are going to stop tweeting as well after being hit with a government-funded media label, uh, too, which, again, you think, uh, wait a minute, right, you guys are government-funded. And you have to look at that claim and say, hmm, is it real? Is it really only 1%? We're going to get into that here in a second, because I think there's some debunking that needs to be done. But first, I want to show you an interview with... Elon Musk and the BBC. Now, the BBC also got slapped with this government-funded media label, which, again, I think is relatively fair. Um, yeah, I think he wound up tweaking the label a little bit later on for the BBC. But here's the back and forth with Elon Musk and a, a BBC reporter who's trying to call Elon out because since Elon took over, he's been seeing a lot of hate speech in his feed. Content you don't like or, or hateful? What do you mean to describe a hateful thing? Yeah, I mean, you know, just content that will solicit a reaction, something that may include something that is slightly racist or slightly sexist, those kinds of, those kinds of things. So you think if I'm, something is slightly sexist, it should be banned? I, no, is that I'm, what you're saying? I'm not saying anything. I'm saying... Well, I'm just curious. What you, I'm, just, I'm trying to say what you mean by hateful con content. And I'm asking for specific examples. Can you name one example? I, I honestly don't... I, I, honestly, you I don't... You can't name I, a single example. I'll tell you why. Because I don't actually use that for you feed anymore. Because I, I just don't particularly like it. But you said actually, a lot of people, a lot of people are quite similar. I, 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 only, well, I only look well, at hang my, on a second. My you said you've seen more hateful content, but you can't name a single example. Not even one. I'm asking for one example. Right. And and you I, can't I, give a single I, one. And, 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 and I'm saying... I, then I, I say, sir, that you don't know what you're talking about. Really? Yes, because you can't give me a single example of hateful con content, not even one tweet. And yet you claimed that the hateful content was high. Well, that's a false. No, what I could just lied. <laughs> not exactly a great performance there by the BBC. And Elon Musk is calling him out. Now, of course, of course, look. There's always been hateful content on Twitter. I mean, you know, that's not a surprise. Everyone knows there's hateful content on Twitter. Has there been an increase since uh, Elon Musk uh, took over? I don't think so. I haven't noticed it. People are able to say things like, you know, we think men are men or women are women. And like to a liberal, I guess that's hate speech. Uh, but to half the country, that's kind of just obvious. And honestly, it's about 70 or 80 percent of the country that say, yeah, that's that's true. We should be able to say those things. Uh, so maybe to from a hardcore left wing perspective, there's more, quote unquote, hate on the site. But generally speaking, I haven't noticed much of a difference, honestly. I mean, and I think the same is true where you know, there's a lot of people on the conservative side that keep complaining about there still remains censorship on Twitter that they don't particularly, uh, you know, uh, like. I mean, this is one of those things where never, no one's ever going to be happy. That's, that's basically the point uh, at, the, at the end of the day. Now, um, we wanted to get into the actual claim here, though, that NPR is only 1% government funded. Is that even true? This, it reminded me immediately of when Planned Parenthood says, only 1% of our business is abortions. What are you talking about? A ridiculous spinning of the facts that we've already debunked on this program. So let's look at this. This is the NPR site, Public Radio Finances. And... Uh, 
Can we zoom in on this smiling lady here, this ad? Uh, this says, uh, wondering how verazinia hormone therapy will work inside your body? Again, our uh, producer may be going through a bit of, a, bit of an identity crisis here. Now, look, I understand that, you know, making some announcements, maybe pouring some Bud Light into your mouth in a bath might seem like a good idea. But... You may want to, I don't know how that's going to work out long term for you. It would not be an attractive woman. He would not. I'm just, just throwing that out there. Maybe the Verazinio would help with that problem. I'm not sure. But if you go into the NPR public funding here, they point out very clearly that the funding they get from the government is vital to their existence. Quote, federal funding is essential. By the way, that's not my highlighting there. We're not saying that so you, make, you draw your attention to it. That bold of the word essential is on their site. NPR bolded that word. Federal funding is essential to public radio service to the American public, and its continuation is critical for both stations and program producers, including NPR. Public radio stations receive annual grants directly from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that make up an important part of a diverse revenue mix that includes listener support, corporate sponsorships, and grants. Stations, in turn, draw on this mix of public and privately sourced revenue to base to pay NPR and other public radio producers for their programming. These station programming fees comprise a significant portion of NPR's largest source of revenue. The loss of federal funding would undermine the station's ability to pay NPR for programming, thereby weakening the institution. Now, did you get the sleight of hand there? Do you get the trickery? Do you follow the bouncing dollar? Because it's a little bit hard to kind of see the way that they're doing it. Again, they're saying, we only have 1% of money that's government money. Stop saying we're government funded. Is that true? Let's look at this. In 2020, NPR took in $275 million and uh, its operating expenses were $298 million. So they lost some money in 2020 and 2021, sort of bounced back the other way. $309 million in revenue and only $280 million in operating expenses. So some years they're profitable, some years they're not. Of course, they're a nonprofit company, but they're not necessarily losing money every single year. But how do they get this money that pays for all the fancy things that they keep doing? Well, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting uh, notes uh, that they will grant $127.94 million to public radio grants. Now, that certainly sounds a lot more like 1% of the budget, which is $280 million. Um, NPR took in $309 million in to, uh, total revenue in 2021. But of that $309 million, $90 million came from programming and station fees, about 30% of their budget, 29.19 to be exact. So I don't know if you're following this at all, but this is just like what I would call money laundering. This is like watching an episode of Ozark. They've opened the casino to launder the money through, so it looks legitimate, and they can say things like, oh, well, it's only 1%, but in reality, it's not just 1%. NPR is saying, we make $300 million a year, but it's only like 1%, 0.6% of our money actually comes from the government. So it's unfair to call us government-funded. Of course, however, we should probably point out that a lot of the other money, like 30% of our budget, about $90 million, comes from local stations, our affiliates. And of course, they get tons of government money. Tons, $127 million. And of course, without those stations, uh, if they went away, NPR would have very little revenue at all. 
because no one will be hearing their programming on the actual radio stations. So instead of going directly from the government to NPR, it goes from the government to the local stations to NPR. It's Ozark. The bottom line is NPR's revenue is $300 million. They say the government funding isn't even worth mentioning unless they happen to be begging for it. And so they say it's essential, one of the two. But the federal government gives these stations $127 million a year. And then if this money was not there, these stations would not be broadcasting the signal. And instead of $300 million in revenue, NPR's revenue would be more like $0 million. This is just a shell game. And they, they're coming out and saying this to you because they don't want you to know what the truth is. And, you know, look, Elon Musk is calling them out on it. Shouldn't they just admit it? Shouldn't they just say, look, yeah, we get a bunch of government money. You want to know that about us? Fine. The bottom line is we stand by our reporting, blah, 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 blah. They won't do that because they are embarrassed about their own reality. Just like Dylan Mulvaney. NPR is embarrassed about the truth of what's going on behind the scenes. And just like my producer, the same thing applies to him. Uh, It's time to breathe some life into your own backyard this spring with fastgrowingtrees.com. Yes, they can help you plant your dream garden with expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. Fastgrowingtrees.com has plant experts who curate thousands of easy-to-grow plants, shrubs, and trees, and shrubbery, things that will fit your unique climate. From Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between, your home is going to look amazing, and hey, you might get something delicious out of it at the same time. Happy plants make a happy home. Did you know that? I bet you did. Now you do for sure. Sometimes it's hard to know which plants will do best. I will say, I don't know anything about that. Uh, my knowledge of planting things is, is begins and ends with fastgrowingtrees.com. And that's really all you need, because you go there, you go to the site and you say, here's where I live, and a whole list populates of like, here's the plants that will live in your environment. And you don't have to make it up. You don't have to have the knowledge. They have the knowledge, and they can help you every step of the way. With Fast Growing Trees 30-Day Alive and Thrive Guarantee, you will know everything will look great, fresh out of the box. With over 1.5 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers, you can get your yard looking great as well. FastGrowingTrees.com slash stew. Get 15% off your entire order. 15% off now at FastGrowingTrees.com slash stew. It's FastGrowingTrees.com slash stew. Well, every time there's a tragic shooting somewhere in the country, we know it's going to happen. We know that the same terrible arguments are going to be trotted out over and over and over again. And they have to be pushed back against someone who's always in the middle of that battle is Amy Swearer. She's back on the program. She's a Second Amendment expert and senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation. Amy, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Can we go through some of these arguments that have popped up since uh, both the Nashville and Louisville shootings? One of which, especially in the Nashville situation, a lot of the focus was about this idea of permitless carry, that these are we're we're opening up these gun laws. Permitless permitless carry is the type of thing that's going to make life worse. Sheriff John Mina tweeted permitless carry will only make things more difficult for law enforcement. Is that true? Well, no, it's it's not true on a general level, and it's certainly not true with respect to particular acts of targeted violence like this mass public shooting, right? So it, it's not as though prior to permitless carry, 
you know, concealed carry permit holders just had like, you know, a light bulb or a sign above their head that said, look at me, I'm, I'm carrying. And even if they did, right, that they, they would not have been targeted. You know, they, they're not the ones who are generally going about committing crimes. It's the people that who do not have those concealed carry permits who are already you know, um, not in a position where they want to be following the law, who are not going to tell police officers that they are carrying lawfully or unlawfully. Those have always been the people who are dangerous. That doesn't change the inability of law enforcement to know who they're interacting with uh, or, or whether they are armed has not changed based on permitless carry. And certainly nothing with respect to this mass public shooting changed. Nothing about that law mattered. You had an individual who woke up and decided that he wanted to kill a lot of people and him taking a long gun openly into a bank to commit mass murder had nothing at all to do. He did not wake up and say, oh, look, I can carry a handgun without a license. So therefore I will carry a long gun to kill people. It just doesn't make sense to blame this on permitless carry. Yeah, it almost seems like a, a lot of opportunism is tied to this, right? Like they think people are angry about the incident, which rightly so, of course, it's a terrible mm -hmm. thing, but they always try to advance their own public policy ideas. Um, another one is, uh, is uh, you, you responded to this one on Twitter. Kentucky is a permitless carry state. When uh, lawmakers eliminated concealed carry permits in 2019, they argued uh, that more people carrying guns would reduce incidents like these. And, and the one she was talking about in particular was the Louisville shooting. This is the one that happened mm -hmm in the bank. And the idea is, well, you know, everyone said if you have permitless carry, there'd be people in a bank like this and those people would be able to take their guns out and they would be able to stop these things. And, and this incident proves that that's just not true. Yeah. Well, even from just a theoretical perspective, right, that's a bit like saying, well, seatbelts and airbags don't work because sometimes it just doesn't matter and people still die. No, there are always going to be situations where law enforcement isn't on hand, where an armed civilian isn't on hand. But in this case, particularly, it's a bad argument because the bank itself, regardless of what state law said, the bank itself imposed a gun-free zone on its employees. It is, according to the, the bank policy, a fireable offense to carry guns as an employee uh, on bank property. And when you look at what actually happened, there weren't even customers in the bank at this point. It was prior to the bank's opening. The only people in there, and it appears the only people who were actually even targeted, were bank employees who had been rendered defenseless by a private company, regardless of what the state had said. Mm. I, it really is fascinating because they, they never talk about that. They never point out that you know, these people they really didn't have a chance to defend themselves. It's, it's really awful. And again, it doesn't mean that every one of these mass shootings is going to be stopped by someone with a gun. It may or may not work. But, I, you know, at least for me, I, I would like to have the peace of mind to at least have a chance and not be a sitting duck in one of these incidents. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, it's like saying that just because, um, you know, a fire was so bad that a, a personal fire extinguisher wasn't helpful because it still burned down the house. That doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of scenarios where it is helpful to have that fire extinguisher. That, that's why we have them. And it's, it's the same concept. Right. This individual was not motivated by or deterred by any law on the books. He woke up and said, I want to kill people. It didn't matter whether it was permitless carry or not permitless carry because he was about ready to violate the laws about not murdering people, right? What permitless carry does, again, with these exceptions where private companies have said, well, 
everywhere but here, right? This is a gun-free zone. You're on your own. It gives people a chance. It gives them an opportunity. And again, there will always be situations where it's, it's not sufficient, which is why we should look at uh, warning signs, right? Trying to deter these mass shooters, trying to intervene when it becomes clear that it, they're dangerous to themselves or to others. But what matters when we've gotten to that point where you have an active threat is how quickly and practically can people who are there, who are about to be victimized, how can they actually defend themselves? And the best way of doing that, you know, when you're faced with an active threat, is to have you know, armed defense at a distance to be able to shoot back. And unfortunately, um, you know, we have no way of knowing whether any of those bank employees would otherwise have been carrying. Um, it's certainly not their fault. They have done nothing wrong. But at the end of the day, they did not have that chance. Uh, it, it was simply not a tool that they had in their tool bag to choose to fight back. Mm. Uh, let's talk about this issue generally, because I think, you know, while I don't think it's a logical thing, I think it's an emotional argument. It is an argument that I think resonates with a lot of people, which is we went through a long period in our history where we didn't feel like we saw these things on the news uh, this often. And, uh, you know, uh, they do happen from time to time. There's a lot of statistics that show that overall violence is down. We can get to that here in a second. But these mass shootings in particular, these spectacle type shootings, people looking for attention, people trying to get to these high numbers of death, uh, people who are going to just take revenge on, on co-workers and such. Is there a way to stop these? Is there a way to reduce them? I mean, honestly, when I think about this, it is really, really a difficult problem to solve because you're talking about something very random. And as much as it feels like it's on the news every day, it's also very rare. It's most likely people will never have to experience this situation. Thank God. But how do you reduce uh, this type of incident? Yeah, you're right. It is hard because th this is not, in fact, how most people who feel aggrieved uh, with society or, or who are angry or suffer from mental illness. This is this is not how they normally take it out. And so it is, statistically speaking, a, a very rare, you know, it, it's a low probability event. Um, but I think what you have to look at doing is, is in some sense, you know, looking at the low hanging fruit. So a lot of these individuals are, are practically shouting, sometimes literally, if you look at Parkland, for example, saying, I'm going to be the next mass shooter. Um, there, there are certain patterns that they follow. Um, certainly a lot of them uh, are showing signs of being a, very clear signs of being a danger to themselves or others. And looking at understanding those warning signs, helping people around them understand those warning signs and, and having mechanisms in place to intervene, whether it's under existing laws or looking at expanding some of those laws to intervene against specifically against these people who are dangerous to themselves or others. And that's also gonna help things uh, because again, most, most people are not taking out their anger in this way. Uh, it's going to help with things like suicide where maybe their only intended target was themselves, um, but they're again, still showing signs of being dangerous to themselves. That type of targeted intervention is still going to be useful. Um, so that's certainly one way. And the second way is deterrence. We know that a lot of these individuals learn from the, the mistakes, if you will, of past shooters. And we also know that they tend to target places where their victims will not fight back, where it is easier for them to target unarmed people or to access those places without you know, having something like a locked door getting in their way. Um, and so hardening soft targets is also very, very important for deterrence. Mm, yeah, that, that's certainly something that would be 
uh, very helpful, particularly in schools and, and some, some of these other areas where, you know, maybe you don't want guns from uh, everyday citizens as much. Um, but, you know, of course, that's a, that's a, bigger, a bigger debate. I, I want to focus on something you, you pointed out there because you, you mentioned suicides. And I think this is such a fascinating part of this mm-hmm. where if you look at, let's say, cable news coverage of, of gun violence in this country, you would look at it, if you put the three buckets in there and try to come up with a, with a split, you'd probably say 90% of the coverage goes to mass shootings, maybe 9.5% goes to just everyday violence, and a half a percent goes to suicide. When you talk about the gun violence problem in this country, however, it's something like 54% is suicide. Uh, the, basically, all the rest of it is regular violence when you're talking about gang violence and other just, you know, miscellaneous death. And then a very tiny, 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 tiny sliver is the mass shooting. You're talking about, you know, the FBI has it is less than 100 deaths per year in these incidents. And it seems to me that it would make a lot more sense to try to reduce those other huge buckets of violence by one or two percent than going after trying to you know, knock down the mass shootings. Of course, you do what you can to try to reduce those numbers. But we can make a much bigger difference if we focused on suicide and also criminals who get caught with guns that violate existing laws. We don't just I don't know, let them off off the street in five minutes. No, you you are absolutely right. And what you are talking about is quite literally the difference between doing public policy well and doing public policy poorly. Um, So with mass public shootings, you're right. We are talking about on any given year, a fraction of a percent of the problem of gun deaths. Um, Most things are going to be suicides or more like urban gang related violence. That's where most people are most likely to suffer, where they're most likely to be shot either by themselves or others, or to be victimized, uh, even not shot, right? Just in armed robbery is itself traumatizing to people who go through that. Um, and so when the, the good news is though, when you focus on those things, especially with suicides, right? Like we talked about so many of these mass public shooters have mental health problems. They are, uh, at the end of the day, suicidal. They're intending to die and take as many people as they can with them. So when you focus on something like suicide prevention, not only are you hitting the major parts of the bucket that is gun violence, but you're also then more likely to sweep in something like mass public shootings and actually have an impact there. Because again, even though it is a fraction of a percent of the problem, it's devastating toward communities, right? It really impacts our feelings of public safety. And so again, when you go for the, that bigger slice of the pie, you're also still capturing something like mass public shootings that, that's much lower. Um, and that's how you do good public policy. That's how you actually save lives instead of trying to target and tailor policies to go after you know, the, the thing that happens the least often. Mm. Uh, one more for you here, Amy. We've got about one minute left. Um, uh, how much mm. of a problem here is when we talk about the overall gun violence problem, how much is the problem these you know, city prosecutors who get into office arguing that we should downgrade things like gun crimes to misdemeanors instead of felonies. We should let criminals that have been you know, harassing and violent attacks around their city back out of the streets. I mean, this this problem you know, I think you can make a real a dent in this by just making sure the people you've already caught, caught committing crimes aren't out there committing more crimes. Absolutely. If you want to protect people from dangerous offenders, the easiest way is not to try to you know, keep guns from, from getting into their hands by broadly burdening everyone. 
It's to put them in a situation where they cannot endanger anyone in any capacity. And that's namely by putting them in prison, by detaining them and keeping them from that public. Thank you so much. Amy Swear, Second Amendment expert and legal uh, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Amy. Make sure to follow Amy so you can see her slap down all these dumb arguments on Twitter. Thank you. You know, buying or selling a home is already one of the most stressful things you could do. We've seen so many people moving from areas where maybe they have one of these uh, Soros prosecutors uh, in their town. Town's going uh, downhill. They want to get out. They're going to a new place. And when you go to a new place, you don't know what the best real estate agent is in that particular area. Generally speaking, our homes are our biggest investment. It's a lot of responsibility. You need to have someone you can trust. That's why I always recommend realestateagentsitrust.com. They work with the best agents in every market. They do their homework. They talk to every agent before inviting them to even join the network. And they work with full-time professionals. These are the best agents in your area, no matter where you're going or where you're leaving. The team makes the introduction. They follow you through the, the process and make sure you're satisfied. They have a long track record of success. And you know a lot of them are you know, listeners of this audience. They share your values. They, they can talk to you. They're not going to be psychopaths. These are good people. They're not just calling some random person you found on the internet. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Check it out now. Realestateagentsitrust.com. They'll introduce you to the best agent in your area. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. You know, sometimes the media hypocrisy is stunning, even to someone like me and probably you as well, who sit around and think about this stuff all the time. Uh, let me give you a couple of things from the L.A. Times. This one first. Anti-vaxxers love to cite this study of covid vaccine deaths. Now it's been retracted. And it tells a story of an academic study that came out in January that said there were two hundred and seventy eight thousand uh, covid-19 deaths or vaccine deaths in the country. Now. They go through the methodology of this, and I think you'd probably agree, even if you're really skeptical about the vaccines, that it's not the best way to measure this number. Basically, they just asked people, hey, do you know someone who died of, of, of the COVID vaccine? Now, these people aren't doctors. They don't know necessarily all the causes. They might have heard a rumor. They may have read something on Facebook. They may be incredibly worried about it. But we don't, this isn't a scientific study of whether that was actually the cause or not. It's just asking people, hey, have you heard of anyone that this has happened to? And they go through and pick this study apart. And I think most people would say, okay, that's not a great way of getting a real number. It's maybe an interesting anecdote to see, like maybe we should look into this further, but that's about it. It's just a survey of people saying, what have you heard? Have there been people in your family? Have you heard of a friend? Something at work? Like, what do you think? Not a, exactly a scientific study. But the thing that hit me off uh, on this one more than anything else is that this one's been retracted. And the LA Times is a big study about, or a big piece about how this study is junk and it's been retracted and blah, 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 blah. I just happened to read two days earlier a study Written up in the L.A. Times, this one, most Americans say they or a family member have experienced gun violence. And how does this study work? You're going to be shocked to hear it's the exact same thing. What they went said is they went to people and they said, uh, well, we asked a bunch of people and they say, uh, you know, five percent of people say they know someone who's been affected by gun violence. And it goes to uh, they add up all these different categories. Is it you've seen a gun somewhere? Is it have you been shot? Have you do you know someone who's shot? Do you have a relative who knows someone who's shot? Blah, 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 blah. They add this all up to get to this gigantic number. Well, it's the same thing they did in the vaccine study. And you get this idea where you take this percentage that might be 
very, very small, but then you extrapolate it over the entire country and you get very, very large numbers. It's just embarrassing hypocrisy, but exactly what you'd expect from the LA Times and every other media organization in America. Uh, Now, we do have a new uh, update on the big Pentagon leak story. The suspected leader of a top secret Pentagon document, uh, and actually it was a bunch of documents, has been arrested as of today. Uh, His name is Jack Tejera. Uh, He's the primary uh, focus of the investigation. Uh, Now, we covered on radio this morning that the Washington Post wrote up a story saying, hey, we went to Discord. We found a couple of teenagers who said they know this guy. And here's who he is. And they kind of went through this whole profile. Didn't give his name, but kind of gave a profile of who he was. We don't know for sure if that's the person who was arrested today. It does seem pretty consistent with the earlier story. A guy who worked at the uh, at the uh, uh, at I think it's Fort Bragg. Um, and he supposedly is the one leaking this. It went down without an incident. We'll find out if this guy really is the guy coming forward. And you know we'll get to the bottom of it. We always do. I mean, we're the United States, and we always get to the bottom. We never make mistakes. We never slip up with security of documents, certainly not in every ex-president's home. Uh, That's certainly not uh, what we do with our documents. In fact, what we do is we always keep control of them, especially when they have sensitive information that could do damage to security. And that's why a police document detailing President Biden's security information was found on a Belfast street. Yes, on a street. Sensitive details of the security operation unexpectedly spilled into public view on Wednesday when a man identified only as Bill discovered a police planning document lying on a Belfast street. The document, discovered near the hotel where Joe Biden was staying, included the names and phone numbers of police officers involved in the operation, as well as the streets where they they were deployed, and other information such as street closures and security measures to detect hostile vehicles. It sounds a bit crazy, but it's true, the man known as Bill said. So... We, how can we ever keep these documents out of the hands of our enemies? Sure, Bill can find them. But, I mean, Bill is no Vladimir Putin. So I doubt anybody is going to cause any problems. I mean, think about this. If, this is, if Bill can find these things on the street, what else do our enemies know about us? By now, you might know Nefarious opens nationwide this weekend. Of course, this is based on a book written by our own Steve Dace. Uh, You can get your tickets now at whoisnefarious.com. And you might say, well, I mean, it sounds pretty cool, but I don't know that much about it. Uh, Do you have a review of some sort? And I do. Here's what the review is called. Nefarious uses horror to tell a faith-based story. But Glenn Beck's cameo is really scary. (laughs) This is so good. By the way, I noticed my producer has getting really good ads again today. Uh, zoom in on that. Women are bold, not bitchy. What, what product is that for? I mean, again, it does fit with this whole transition arc. There's a whole storyline there. And when he gets to be a woman, he needs to know to be bold, not bitchy. And that will help my uh, sanity as well. So that's important. But this movie is coming out this weekend and it talks about now. Now, Glenn is in this movie for a very short period of time. And it's this interview or this uh, review, which is done by, you know, some liberal. uh, You know, I don't think he's a huge fan of the faith message in it. But generally speaking, is relatively positive on the movie itself that you might like it. But then it says uh, Glenn Beck doesn't belong in any movie. (laughs) 
it says, this is not someone you want in your movie, no matter what you believe. Beck, Beck shows up at the end, playing himself in an epilogue. He oozes sincerity and compassion. Ugh. Literally, in the review, they just wrote, ugh, about Glenn's performance. So, I'm very disappointed they did not mention his weight. But other than that, uh, basically what they're telling you to do is go see Glenn and Steve Days' book, Nefarious. It's whoisnefarious.com. Whoisnefarious.com. Get your tickets now. Whoisnefarious.com. Dr. Phil had a guest guest on this week that uh, claimed this. Just because I gave birth doesn't make me a woman or a mother. Now, here's the thing. Yes, it does. Just throwing that out there. It does 100%. And I think we we lose something in this identification debate, right? Where we say, oh, well, just because I do this doesn't make me this. Well, you don't get to define yourselves. Uh, You don't get to just make up these terms like mother, woman. These terms mean something. You don't get to say what you are. People can judge what you are by the content of what's gone on. And if that, that content happens to be a birth, then yeah, you're a mommy. Like it or not, whether you want to identify as a, as a mom or not, Dr. Phil spoke to guests in the audience about how the term woman has increasingly been replaced with gender-neutral terms such as birthing person and person with a uterus. So, good, good, uh, good country we've got going on here, by the way. Um, by the way, we should also mention that uh, Major League Baseball... Now, um, it's funny because a lot of these... Um, stadiums have deals with Bud Light. So maybe they can, we can have a little crossover here between these two stories. Um, Bud Light uh, and honestly a bunch of these um, uh, stadiums are having an issue because they made all these changes to the rules that shorten the game. And for people watching on TV, it's been maybe something you like, that you like the path, uh, the, the pa- uh, pace of the game a little bit better. You know, I like baseball. I don't necessarily mind how long it is, but some people, you know, it's kind of bothering them. The problem, however, is the stadiums, because the stadiums were like, hey, wait a minute, we can only sell beer to the end of the seventh inning. It's usually the seventh inning stretch. And uh, now the games are going so fast, people are drinking less beer. And so now what they're going to do is actually extend it to the eighth inning, which the whole point of stopping selling it in the seventh inning is because, you know, I always, my impression, like they want you to not have any beer close to you leaving and potentially driving home. It gives you a little bit of a chance to sober up, perhaps. Uh, before that happens. Now, that's not exactly what happens. Uh, I've been to uh, these games and seen how these people act. Uh, However, uh, that was kind of the concept I always thought. Now, instead of stopping the sales earlier, they're going to stop them later because they need more beer sales. So there you go. I think it could just be people just don't want the Dylan Mulvaney beer anymore, and that's the only one you can get at a stadium most of the time. So could be that. We will see how it plays out. We've had some record YouTube sh- uh, shows lately, and thank you so much for uh, you know checking the show out, clicking like, dropping an algorithmic engagement comment below. If you happen to be watching on YouTube, go ahead and join the fun. Steven writes, I love this stupid show. Five stars is not enough. Six stars, sir. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Katie writes, I really hope someone can reverse these crazy idiotic policies. I wonder what it will be like to have power outages all the time. Did Biden sell our country to China? No, that means he would get some money for it. And he's he's too stupid. He probably just gave it away. Uh, Vandalay Industries, which is a great employer, I've heard. Uh, does no one really understand that fossil fuels are used to generate electricity? I never hear anyone either for or against EVs mention this rudimentary fact. Yeah, that's kind of an important part of the package. Not magical elves in the wall. 
That's not how that works. And the last one, Christy writes, oh my gosh, I realized that Justin Pearson was going for MLK, but I thought he sounded hilariously like that one Hillary Clinton speech. I don't feel no ways tar. How embarrassing for them. Oh, that's a classic speech. I remember that one. All right, see you tomorrow.